0: This episode, we talk with Helen Ball, Professor of Anthropology and Director of the Durham Infancy and Sleep Centre. Helen studies infant sleep and the parent-infant sleep relationship from a biosocial perspective. Broadly defined, her research examines sleep ecology of infants, young children, and their parents. This encompasses attitudes and practices regarding infant sleep, behavioural and physiological monitoring of infants and their parents during sleep, infant sleep development and the discordance between cultural sleep preferences and biological sleep needs. Helen has conducted research in hospitals and the community and contributes to national and international policy and practice guidelines on infant care. She pioneers the translation of academic research on infant sleep into evidence for use by parents and healthcare staff via BASIS the Baby Sleep Information Source website. She serves as associate editor of the journal Sleep Health and is on the editorial board of the Journal of Human Lactation. And she is chair of the Lullaby Trust scientific committee and an elected board member of the International Society for the Study and Prevention of Infant Deaths. In 2013, Helen received an award for Outstanding Impact in Society from the Economic and Social Research Council. And in 2018, Durham University was awarded the Queen's Anniversary Prize for her research and outreach on parent-infant sleep. In this episode, you'll hear us talking with Helen about where on earth did the myths come which tell us we will do harm to our baby if we pick them up too much. And Rachel tells us what horrendous things she was told with her first baby. Helen takes us on an anthropological look at motherhood and infancy we find out where the well baby nurseries in hospitals came from we discuss the old current and quite frankly shocking SIDS safety messaging around the globe using a meat cleaver in bed with a baby to shock you out of bed sharing yes you need to hear this And find out how Helen played an incredibly crucial role ensuring that the UK and now many other countries actually discuss safe bed sharing with parents instead of a blanket rule against it. And in doing so, saving many a breastfeeding relationship and many parents' sanity. This episode has so many golden nuggets. You might just want to stay in and get your notebook out. First put the kettle on and settle in. You are going to love this. But just a sec before we start on this epic episode. If you love the show and want more from Rachel and me, then head on over to our websites and check out all the courses, books, collectives a go go. You'll find all the details and occasional discount deals on the old Instagram at the Midwives Cauldron or, of course, in the show notes below and if you really really love the show please consider two things a single or a monthly donation over on patreon or even buy me a coffee and remember that review you leave on your podcast host really makes a difference in who listens in thank you for your support we just love having you bubbling away with us I'm Katie James, and this is the Midwives Cauldron Podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by my incredible co host, Dr. Rachel Reed. Listen in as we hubble, bubble, toil, and trouble our way through aspects of womanhood, midwifery, birth, and lactation. So go on, subscribe now, and hear us on your favorite podcast host. A very good morning to you, Professor Helen Ball. It is an absolute pleasure to have you with us today in the cauldron with me and Rachel. So welcome on this very chilly morning.
1: Thank you very much. Yes, it's very cold up here in the, the northeast. So um, I wish I was in Brisbane. <laughs>
2: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, no, it's it's 86 degrees humidity here. It's pretty gross.
1: <laughs> I was there in 2017. Um at that time of year this in a kind of like yeah end of december january february um i loved it
0: (laughs) well both of us well you'll hear rachel definitely hails from the northeast and we uh studied together at newcastle did Mm -hmm. our midwifery at the rvi and um i remember those mornings walking up from where was I down at the quayside in yeah. uh, uni digs and it was about a 45 minute walk and I'd have about six layers on and <laughs> I'd just take them off <laughs> gradually as I went up that hill to the um, the hospital and I'd get there with just one layer on because I'd walked so quickly but <laughs> coming from London god that northeast wind <laughs> I don't miss it that's for sure. Uh, Helen you came into our lives when we were but we students in, as I say, Newcastle in the RVI, the Royal Victoria Infirmary. And as we started our placement, you were there already studying. So it feels amazing. This is like 22 years ago. We've we've (laughs) eventually come back together and we get to speak to you. So that feels rather nice.
1: Makes me feel rather old.
0: (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Helen, can I ask you, because... You have an interesting background in in how you've got here, and mm. I would love our audience to know a little bit more about you mm. and how you came into this field of research from, from your background, really, of anthropology.
1: Okay, then. Well, I started my career as a primatologist, so I did my mm. PhD studying monkeys in the Caribbean um, and thought... For a few years after I'd finished my PhD, that that's what I'd probably carry on studying all my life. Um but by the time I got my the job in Durham, um I'd already had my first daughter. Um and I hadn't imagined, so I'd done my PhD in the US, and I hadn't imagined really that I would be moving back to the UK. But this mm-hmm. job in Durham came up and it really fit with all of my background and training. So I applied for it and and got it and then found myself in the northeast of England with a field site that was, you know, four odd thousand miles away on the other side of the world and a Mm -hmm. small child who didn't want me to leave them for extended periods of time and trying to work out how to continue to do primatology and be an academic in the northeast of England. Um, I, you know, after after a very hectic summer, um, chasing monkeys from seven in the morning until seven in the evening, and then going home to my daughter and and husband who had spent the day on the beach in in San Juan, um, made me decide that actually I didn't want to keep doing that anymore. I was missing <laughs> out on all the fun, um, and that I needed to switch what I was studying. So wow. I started to think about what I could study in the northeast of England given the training that I'd had to that point mm. and there was a um there was a another anthropologist called James McKenna in the states who was making a bit of a splash studying mother baby sleep and I knew that he had been a primatologist before he started doing that and I thought I could do that nobody's doing that in the UK um, so that could be what I switched to studying and and um, serendipitously, as I was a mum of a, of a young child, and then very shortly had another one, I knew lots of new mums. So it seemed like um, a perfect way to combine what was going on in family life with my academic training and, and interests. So I'd, I'd gotten interested in infant sleep, obviously, as you do, having your first child. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so that 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 just kind of, became the thing that I studied um for various reasons which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly
0: fabulous thank you god oh primatologist that was always on my list as well but I didn't quite make it there so I'm feeling kind of like oh
1: we all grew up wanting to be Jane Goodall I
0: think don't we all <laughs> no exactly it seems so idyllic but yes and then you came into infant sleep
1: yeah it wasn't so, as an
0: anthropologist, how do you approach how and what we do as as in terms of infant sleep differently to say me as a midwife who would then go into study infant sleep or the other research? Because there is a difference,
1: mm-hmm, definitely. So, so my background's you know trained me in evolutionary biology um, and behaviour. So that's the way in which I was thinking about infant sleep before I ever started studying it. Um, So that means kind of anthropologists take a a comparative approach to a lot of the things that we do, and that means studying cross-culturally, but it also means um, studying cross-species, which is obviously what I've been doing as a primatologist. And um, if you think about humans as just You know, animals like all other animals, we're mammals. And our mammalian um, biology expects certain things to happen in infant development. Um, You know, it unfolds in a certain way. And the way it unfolds for primates is that babies have a long gestation period and they're born relatively well developed. And immediately after birth they can cling to their mom's and they stay with their mothers 24-7 while she forages, while she sleeps, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they feed at will whenever they want to. And primate mothers produce milk that's um high in sugar and uh, provides babies with energy, but it's not got a lot of fat in it, and it doesn't satiate babies for a very long period, like say the milk of other kinds of mammals who put their babies in nests and leave them for long periods. So like, you know, rabbits and, and uh, mice and even cats and dogs. Um, So, so we're, you know, primates are born with a certain set of characteristics um, that sort of dictates the way in which they're cared for. And when you think about human babies, Humans are obviously primates too. We're mammals too. We produce milk for our babies. Our milk is the same kind of milk as that of other primates. Um, It provides uh, energy, but it doesn't provide a lot of fat, so it doesn't satiate babies for a long time. Um, Human babies are born with well-developed sensory organs. Um, We can see, we can hear, we can call. But what we can't do is what a lot of other similar mammals can do, which is to stand up shortly after birth and follow our mums. And we can't do what other primates do, which is cling to our mothers and help ourselves stay with her. So we have to be taken care of. and We have to be carried. We have to be transported. Um, so anthropologists have labelled human babies as being unusually helpless, precocial mammals. So primates are precocial. Humans are supposed to be precocial, but something's happened in our evolutionary history that has caused us to be unusually helpless at birth. And being unusually helpless, but having precocial characteristics like the kind of milk that we uh, feed on, has um, put constraints on um, the way in which human babies expect to be cared for i suppose what the biological kind of expectations are so Mm. for me a human baby needs close contact for safety for warmth needs frequent feeding because um the milk that that they expect to receive doesn't satiate them for long periods and would expect to sleep in close contact with its mother, would not expect to be put down and left somewhere because of their um, incredible vulnerability and helplessness. So that's what really informed my view of what infant sleep ought to be like. And then what I was interested in finding out was, given what I knew about kind of evolutionary biology, what were parents actually doing? How were they actually coping with that incredibly vulnerable baby um, who didn't want to be left for eight hours at night while the parents went to sleep? Um, what was going on in the homes of, of you know northern England, England the Northern English? Um, because we know around the world. Um, you know, there are hugely variable ways of looking after babies, but the vast majority mm. of babies are in contact with a caregiver most of the time.
0: We'll be right back. I just wanted to pop into your luggles and tell you about my brand spanking new podcast, The Feeding Couch. This podcast ain't just designed with pregnant women or new parents in mind, but also for all of us working in the space of birth work. This is the podcast where I hand the mic over to a different mum, dad, parent, or even grandparent to take us on their feeding journey. Every story matters. It's often through hearing others' experiences where we find our own inner knowledge, strength, and courage. Listen in to hear the stories told of triumph, challenge, heartwarming, tear jerking, fist pumping, and how we each deal with our venture into this new world emotionally, socially and physically. Whether you're a student, a newbie midwife, doula, lactation exam prepper, or just hungry for more knowledge, these stories will also give you a backstage pass to the Global Lactation Clinic whether you're pregnant and seeking information or supporting those on their journey. I can't wait to see you on the couch with me soon. Oh, and a little favour, your reviews on Apple Podcasts mean the world. They're like magic beans that help spread the podcast out for those who need to hear it. Let's make this something amazing together. Absolutely. And we seem to have lost we have lost those roots mm-hmm. uh, in in most cultures, in particularly in Western cultures, like you say. How have we got to this point? How are we in the place where we are now, where it's seen as, you know, we still hear the the mother, the grandmother, the mother-in-law say? put that baby down. That baby Mm -hmm. doesn't need to be carried again. We still are competing with the, are you feeding again? You know, particularly once we get past the three or four month stage Mm -hmm. in certain countries where it's seen as a bit, oh, really? You're still breastfeeding?
2: Yeah. Can I tell you what I was told with my first baby? Oh, yeah. I was told in the hospital that I needed to stop picking Mm -hmm. him up so much because I'd bruise him.
1: Wow. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. I've never heard of a baby getting bruised by being hurt. (laughs)
0: And and was he, Rachel? Did you bruise him? Is he still bruised, what, 30 years later?
1: (laughs) That's incredible. Those ideas that we have in in places like the UK and the States and Australia about um, what babies need are really quite recent, to be honest. Um, They don't go back more than 100 or, well, now we're kind of like 100 years ago is like the 1920s, so we should say 150 maybe years ago, the, the middle of the 1800s. Um, you can read historical accounts of advice for mothers um, written in the 1800s. And they were saying all of the things that we've just talked about. The the bosom of the, the, the bosom of the mother is the natural pillow of the baby, and mm-hmm. babies should sleep with their their mothers until they're weaned at around nine months of age and you know all of that kind of th- all of those things that you see in other cultures where they treat you, you know vulnerable helpless babies as vulnerable helpless babies not as little mini adults who can mm-hmm. survive by themselves um so a lot of these ideas that we have in english-speaking western societies um arose around the turn of the the nineteenth to the twentieth century. Um, some of them are to do with, you know, Victorian attitudes. Um, some of them came in a bit later with um, behavioral psychologists such as John B. Watson, um, who was kind of very famous for um, giving lectures. He came to to England and gave lots of lectures about um, not mollycoddling children about Um, you know, um, treating babies in the way in which you want them to become citizens of your Mm. country. So, you know, independent, uh, self-reliant, all of those kinds of things were sort of, they were words that were attached to child rearing. Um, And people bought into all of this stuff um, because it was considered scientific and new and progressive. And, you know, psychology was a was a very um, popular discipline, kind of like the insights that were being um, shared from from psychological research at that time you know were new and exciting um, and people wanted to to follow all of this stuff. but um, but but I think people like John B. Watson did untold damage um, hmm. to relationships between parents and babies for many generations. And his own children, if you read, you can find on the internet the accounts of his own children's lives. They spent many years in therapy afterwards, as a consequence of the way in which he implemented or, or you know insisted that his, his children were were treated. Um, but that the influence of people like him, and also you know, less less extreme um historical. Figures like uh, Truby King from New Zealand, who was a a physician, very, very um, uh, enthusiastic about breastfeeding, um, wanted babies to be um, treated, exposed to the natural world, I suppose, treated in what he considered to be a natural way, which meant putting them outside in nature and leaving them in their prams at the bottom of the garden for hours oh. and feeding them on a very strict schedule, which is not natural at all. Um, but, you know, a lot of those ideas, are, a lot of his ideas are where they're, they're not picking the baby up too frequently, because you'll spoil it comes from and, mm-hmm. and crying being good for baby's lungs. Oh, yeah, that's uh, a great one. Fresh air into their lungs. And, you know, there were there were a lot of There were a lot of things happening in the 20s and the 30s that still influence the ways in which parents and grandparents talk about what babies need these days.
0: It's just like, how are we still doing things from 150 years ago and 100 years ago? And it's just replicating and you hear the same sayings going (laughs) on. It just (laughs) is fascinating, really, and crazy. That we do this, and yet, you know, as a midwife and I'm a lactation consultant. It's, you know, I work with so many women, and for for however many years now, and they may come to me because breastfeeding is not going so well. And often, like I might get to the end point of what they want or what's been going on. They say, "Oh, well, I've read this book, and then they've started this strict schedule, and and they're listening to other advice, and and really, what you finally get out of them is that they go. This makes me feel absolutely awful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like, it hurts me every time I do this, and I don't want to do it. But it's just so ingrained that they have so to mm-hmm. get to this point, yeah. and, and yet they're hurting listening. themselves.
1: We stop listening to our bodies, and we stop listening to our babies, absolutely. and we started listening to male experts. Uh, yes, and, and not yeah. just and be- in infant sleep. <laughs> Yeah,
2: I was going to say that that begins well before babies arrive. Unfortunately,
1: yes, uh, yeah, it does. It's just part of the, a much bigger picture.
2: Um, yeah, completely,
1: with you know, with obstetricians taking over childbirth and everything. But, uh,
0: and I wanted to ask you because you talk about um, on your fantastic website that I've actually used for my entire career, actually, particularly um, when I really specialised in the postpartum area and, and breastfeeding and lactation. And it was called uh it's called Basis now, which is a fantastic uh repository for both healthcare professionals and for parents and mums and um and grandparents and anyone who I could get to read it. And I'd tell them certain pages to go to because <laughs> depending on how much uh, you know capability their brain had to yeah. absorb the information. Um and um I love how you talk on there and you really explain um, just what we often talk about and Rachel has written about and spoken about in terms of when we brought in sort of the pain relief for women in birth and how this was the beginning of the well-baby nurseries. And for me, that was fascinating because I always kind of wondered, why do we have these? Where has this come from? Mm -hmm. Why Mm -hmm. would we take babies away from their mums? But it makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. So I'd love you to expand on that a bit more for us.
1: Well, based on the reading that I did when I was kind of like trying to figure out how all of this came about, um, it it began, you know, in the Victorian era again. And we know, I mean, Queen Victoria was – was a a, you could say a victim of this herself um because she was terrified of childbirth because her cousin had died during childbirth and many victorian women were uh, many victorian women did die during childbirth and you know there's a lot of reasons for that some to do with you know poor nutrition and rickets and deformed pelvises and stuff like that but also because people you know didn't understand about infection control and that sort of thing but um there were many campaigns launched um, around this era about trying to make childbirth less painful and less scary for women. And chloroform um, was the anaesthetic that generally was used at the time. Dear God. Uh, but to access chloroform, you had to have your baby in a hospital. Mm. So the advent of kind of, you know, and it was presented by the suffragettes and the, you know, the the women's rights movement as, um, you know, a, 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 a right for women to not suffer pain and and fear during childbirth, which you know it seems completely legitimate, um, but it propelled women into hospitals to have mm-hmm. babies, and of course when you've had chloroform as an anesthetic it's not mild it completely knocks you out incapacitates you um and the subsequent analgesia that were invented did the same sort of thing you know women had to be scopolamine and morphine i think were a, a particularly interesting combination that caused you to that knocked you out and caused you to forget the horrors um but you were so incapacitated you had to be tied to the bed because you'd just kind of like Fall off and injure yourself. Mm. So mothers were, you know, unable. Basically, having had these rudimentary anaesthetics in childbirth, they were unable to take care of their babies. So, and for several days, so babies were removed to what they considered to be a safe place, which was the the baby nursery, so that they could be observed. Because these anaesthetics also affected the babies; Mm. they depressed their breathing, etc. So they had to be observed by nurses who took care of them. And, of course, they had to feed them something. Formula was kind of like the the new great thing. Um, So babies were fed formula by nurses for several days while their mothers kind of not really recovered from childbirth, but recovered from the anesthesia that they'd had Mm. during childbirth before they were able to take care of them. So baby nurseries came about... Because babies needed to be looked after 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 women had had this kind of very heavy form of anaesthesia. Um, and then as new anaesthetics were developed that you know, didn't require women to be knocked out or unconscious for, for days and take days of recovery, um, baby nurseries began to be... Um, rebranded um as being necessary for infection control so babies had to be kept in a sterile environment in the 50s
2: Um,
1: and you know mothers could only have them to feed them and then they had to go straight back to the nursery
0: and then i mean most of us probably listening and 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 we've seen in the the research in terms of when we take babies away from their mums to give them more sleep and mm-hmm. the babies to settle. Yeah. We know that the mums don't have more sleep, and they no. often will wake up to hearing any baby crying mm-hmm. because they're worried it's their own. Yeah, um, which actually just compounds the whole lack of sleep. Not absolutely. absolutely getting breastfeeding off to a good start, and and we still we still see it not mm-hmm. so much in the UK, and not so much since really the baby friendly. The baby
1: friendly has yeah has made sure that babies are kept in the mother's rooms, but um. Certainly in the US, there are still lots of baby nurseries. Yeah. You know, people have to to fight to get their, to keep hold of their own babies after they've delivered.
2: Absolutely. But then, even then, what we're doing is, for example, you know, most women do have medical births. So we have women who have had a cesarean Mm -hmm. left in a room by themselves with the baby, unable to get to it. With no support in there, mm-hmm. and they're terrified. I remember working yeah. on postnatal wards, and the buzzers continually going off with panicking mothers and choking
1: babies choking on all the mucus. Yeah. And
2: yeah. and it's you know this is just not you know you would have family members there, you would have somebody supporting Absolutely. you, caring yeah. for your baby.
1: You were yeah, you were never left alone before births became medicalized. You were always surrounded by your female relatives. Yeah, mm. um, so. So the the way in which we give birth and the artificial environment that we've created for mums and babies in the the early postnatal period is 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 really a strange thing to do um, mm. for mm. A mother and baby immediately after birth. Um, but it takes quite a lot of effort to get people to see that sometimes because it's become so normalised in our culture. Yes.
0: Mm i I still remember you know even in the last few years being asked by parents of the new mum, When will you take this baby away? Why is this baby not being taken away? <laughs> yeah, um, and it's like, oh well, we do rooming in, and this is going to help support breastfeeding and skin to skin contact and but then that kind of brings us to or makes me question, is this where we have <gasps> how do i put this we in terms of looking at sids or sudden infant death syndrome and um looking at the messaging that then went out in terms of we have a we have a problem we mm-hmm. are seeing a high incidence of this and i know in the uk there was in the early 90s a campaign mm-hmm. called back to sleep which had a huge impact mm-hmm. in reducing the number of babies dying from sids um and I just wonder whether this sort of separation and this the way that we we give birth and our culture has an impact in in what we're seeing with SIDS or whether this is separate and where we're at with that really. This is a very big question. I'm not well um, asked at all, because my brain's going in different directions at the moment.
1: Yeah. So so this was really one of the things that what I was in key thing that I was interested in when I started um this research because that was the messaging that I had also received when I had my um children was that bed sharing was dangerous um that Sid's reduction in the you know in the 90s was a very so my eldest daughter was born in 92 my youngest in 97 and Sid's messaging in the 90s was kind of a top priority in in public health, Mm. um, SIDS rates, you know, in Western countries had been quite high. I mean, all of these things we have to put in perspective, I suppose. So there were about 2000 babies dying between two and two and a half thousand babies a year dying of this, this thing that was labeled SIDS, but nobody actually knew what was killing them in the UK or in England and Wales. Um, And that seemed, you know, incredibly high. And they wanted the rates of that to come down. And obviously parents who lost their babies were very keen to see something done about the high rate of SIDS. But, you know, in a global kind of, from a global perspective, you know, it's a phenomenon of a country that has eliminated all other causes of infant death, really, to Mm -hmm. be able to. Know what your SIDS rate is because you know, mm. if you live in some place with, say, malaria killing millions of babies a year, you don't notice the handful who might, you know, die suddenly and unexpectedly for no known cause infections. Or, you know, you have to have gotten rid of infections to be able mm. to, to have the, the luxury, if you like, of SIDS, which sounds quite callous, but, but you know, in a global perspective, that's that's how it is. Mm. Um, so anyway, these these campaigns were launched in, in most Western societies to try and reduce sudden unexpected deaths. And the key thing, as you've mentioned already, was putting babies on their backs to sleep, and that seemed to work. since rates started to fall in all places that had um, that implemented back-to-sleep campaigns. And, of course, because that was successful, then epidemiologists were on the lookout for, you know, what was the next thing and what's the next thing that we can tell parents will help avoid babies dying. Um, and as the research was conducted, one of the things that came out as a risk factor, besides things like smoking and babies overheating, etc., was babies sleeping with another person, co-sleeping, mm. um, was found to be to increase the risk of SIDS, not as much as some of the other things, but it was definitely identified in multiple studies as a risk. And so people started to include in the safe sleep guidance that if you avoided co-sleeping, like you avoided exposing your baby to smoke and you avoided uh, putting your baby on its front, it would you know, inevitably lead to fewer deaths. But there was a problem with that, And the problem with that was that, well, there's several problems with it, but a key problem with it was that putting babies on their backs and avoiding smoke exposure and many of the other SIDS messages really didn't come with any detrimental consequences. But avoiding co-sleeping does have detrimental consequences for some people and one of the groups of people I was particularly interested in at the time was breastfeeding mothers because Mm. our research had found that breastfeeding mothers had a disproportionate tendency to sleep with their babies more than kind of like um, non-breastfeeding mothers and that was because of the bio- for the biological reasons that I talked about at the beginning, most often because of the, the frequency of nighttime feeding um, and the baby's desire to be with the mother for safety and warmth. And um, the fact that to, to be able to breastfeed for the recommended six months, you have to manage to do it in a way that, preserves your sanity and your sleep so a lot of mothers just bring their babies into bed for those nighttime mm. feeds and the baby ends up staying there you know that was that was the research that we conducted the very first research that we conducted was you know what are parents doing with their babies at night um who are they and why are they doing it and it was very very clear um that in the UK at least the vast majority of people who brought their babies into bed did so or started doing so for, for breastfeeding reasons. Mm. Um, so I can remember going to a SIDS conference. It was in Peterhouse College in Cambridge, in about nineteen ninety-eight. I'm going to say ninety-eight or ninety-nine, and it was after we had done this first piece of research demonstrating. Why parents bed shared and what the benefits were to breastfeeding mothers and babies. And I stood up and I talked about this research and I said that the SIDS guidance, um, telling everybody that they must never bed share was counterproductive, and that it was its its ultimate consequence was going to be to undermine breastfeeding, and that was going to lead to more um, um, negative outcomes, and that there had to be some balance in the guidance because it wasn't the, the, the only. There wasn't one single important issue here to be addressed, which was, you know, reducing SIDS. There were multiple competing interests going mm. on, and they couldn't just um, proceed with this this one topic agenda. Um, and some people um, were really pleased to hear. Me say that, and other people were absolutely furious.
2: I could imagine
1: that because it wasn't, (laughs) it didn't fit the narrative that they wanted to pursue. And so there, you know, there ensued really a battle, I think, within um the the SIDS epidemiology world. And you know, I wasn't considered an epidemiologist, I was just a young anthropologist, so you know, a lot of them thought, what does what does she know? And why Mm. would to her why is anybody listening to her <laughs> oh, no. um so you know it took a long time it was like trying to turn an ocean liner oh, um mm. but um we've eventually got there yeah but um but one one of the most one of the strongest memories that I have of that day was after I'd given my talk I went to coffee so it was you know coffee in between the sessions and I was stood there balancing my cup of coffee and people kept coming up to me and, they, you know, some of them were wanting to persuade me that I was wrong. And other people were kind of like talking about how interesting it was. And um, I felt this tap on my arm. And there was a, 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 an, a an elderly gentleman um, at the conference and he was a very eminent pathologist and he had been one of the key um Movers in um, the SIDS world in the UK. His name was Professor John Emery, and he was, you know, in his eighties at this point. And he patted me on the shoulder, on the arm, and he said, "I can see you're very busy, my dear, and I don't want to interrupt. I just wanted to say, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing very well. Keep doing Mm -hmm. it." And then he wandered off. And that was such a validating experience in the middle of all of these people who mm, were like, yeah. you know quite quite um defensive mm. about being criticized or having their their worldview challenged. Um that you know it propelled me for a long time.
0: Oh, and thank God it did, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, I love that. It's so nice that you – and to get someone like that to just – it's just those little gestures sometimes mm-hmm, that just mm-hmm. – they give you that spark to go, I'm on the right track. I can do yeah. this. And you just have to keep going back to that point of going, oh, no, right. yeah, I'm, because strange. when you're – it's like you're treading water. You're trying mm-hmm. to climb up. Yeah. Um. I mean, like you mentioned James McKenna earlier, and I've been at talks where he's um, shown the messaging in mm-hmm. Canada, I think it was. And you know, they had a big campaign, I think it was the early two thousands where they and you will know this, Helen, as well. Um, where they had pictures of babies in beds with like um a I butcher's mean, knife, babies. a machete mm-hmm. or something next to them covered mm-hmm. in what? blood yeah. showing like what's more
1: dangerous for your baby. Like
0: it was absolutely it was a city no. of Milwaukee. Ah, that's where it was.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was putting your baby in bed with you to sleep is the same as putting them in bed with a big meat cleaver. (gasps) Mother's body as meat cleaver. as Mother's body as lethal weapon. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean, the messaging in the Western countries has just been horrendously scary, vilifying Mm -hmm. what is a natural process. Mm -hmm. And so what we've done to... Like innate reflexes as mammals as primates, as humans is we have just completely severed these ties mm-hmm. of of being able to listen to our instincts, yeah in every corner from the minute you're pregnant, mm-hmm. going into labor and birth and then afterwards being given all these messaging
1: mm-hmm.
0: um you said the other week about Rachel, um I'm more shocked that women are able to birth in our system I'm more shocked that women can actually continue to breastfeed That the ones that can with mm. the type of messaging and support that we initiate their their transition into motherhood with
1: yeah it always seemed completely perverse to me that we tell them we give them so much encouragement to breastfeed yet we make it so difficult for them right from the get-go yeah that was that was the point of the research that I was doing in the RVI all those years ago was you know taking babies away from mothers is one thing. But people thought that putting babies in the same room would fix that, but even that small separation, you know between uh, the mother's bed and the the baby's cot that made it difficult for the baby to to alert her when it was ready to feed that made it difficult for c-section mums to be able to pick their babies out of the the cot by themselves all of those things just you know put barrier after barrier in the way of initiating and establishing breastfeeding
0: yeah absolutely I think we've lost Rachel but she might come back in she's expecting a (laughs) storm and the internet she has a huge internet like antenna but it doesn't do any help (laughs) I thought she's been in that position a while but no, <laughs> she is. He's back. I was just explaining that you you hadn't just left Hello. and gone. I'm done here. Fed up with this talk.
2: <laughs> no, what did I miss? That's the first time I've been kicked out
1: completely of the internet on a podcast. <laughs> Oh, you've <laughs> missed the most important insights. And, you know, <laughs> I said the most interesting things while you were away. Yeah, you did. Oh, no. <laughs> you will. <laughs>
2: I'll have to listen to the podcast we won't I like to find out. <laughs> oh, God. Um,
0: where were we? I want to talk about um, your research and just explain the type of research that you have done in terms of us separating babies and Um, for us I remember coming in you know as brand new student I'd been in the community for six months before they let us loose in the hospital so to speak um, and going on the postnatal ward and you had (laughs) video or camera equipment up watching the mothers and I believe and I Mm. might be wrong because it has been a while um, I believe it was studying looking at if we put clip-on cots or bed sharing and side cots compared to mums whose babies were in the cots within the hospital environment. Yeah. And I think that was the study that we were...
1: Yeah, it was a randomised trial. It was the first randomised trial that we did, and we subsequently did did three. What we were interested in was what happened to mother-baby behaviour when mothers and babies were in close contact with one another versus. Separated simply by the wall of the ba- the bassinet, because the 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 normal bassinets were pushed right up next to the mother's bed, mm. but mum and baby couldn't touch each other mm. easily. Mm. They, they were always too high for the beds, really. Yes. Um, so babies couldn't alert mums when they, you know, were were quiet but awake and wanted to feed. They had to get into screaming. Mode for the mum to know um and mums couldn't easily retrieve their babies they had to kind of get up kneel on the bed or get out of bed or press the buzzer or whatever to have somebody help them get the baby so so it was it was actually oh so many things happened at that conference in Cambridge but it was actually that conference in Cambridge one of the people that I was (laughs) talking to um was Martin Ward-Platt, who was a Mm. consultant neonatologist and he had oversight of the postnatal ward at the RBI. And I said, you know, what I'd really like to do is video the difference in feeding behaviour between mums and babies who are bed-sharing and mums and babies who aren't. Jim McKenna had already videoed, um, well, what what he'd really studied was polysomnography of the sleep of mothers and babies who slept together and slept apart. And he'd done it in a sleep lab. And I I didn't have a sleep lab at that time. And what I wanted to do was look at feeding behaviour, given the previous research that I've done and the importance of feeding uh, with um, bed sharing. And I said, uh, but I can't randomise mums and babies at home because I can't make them sleep in certain conditions. I said, but do you think we could do it in a hospital? Do you think we could randomly allocate them to receive a different kind of bed or or cot um, after birth? And Martin was such a lovely man, and he said, hm, "You know, I think we might be able to do that." Mm. And that started kind of like a, a you know many decades collaboration um, between us and and Martin at the RVI. Doing these studies to look at what happened um, when you put babies in bed with mums immediately after birth for the first in those days, um, babies and mums and babies stayed in hospital for a couple of days, so we we videoed them on the first and second postnatal nights. Um, some of them randomly allocated to have their babies in bed, some of them with a sidecar or clip-on crib attached, and some of them with normal rooming in in the bassinet, and we just gave them a remote control, um, and they turned the camera on when they were ready to settle down for the night and turned it off again in the morning, Um, and then we coded the videos and looked at feeding behaviour and found out that it made a huge amount of difference if mothers and babies could touch each other compared to simply being separated by the wall of that bassinet Mm -hmm. in terms of how frequently they fed during the night. Oh, that that kind of like started me on you know a whole load of um of projects looking at kind of what the relationship between sleeping and feeding was
2: mm. And yet we still have those fish tanks as standard mm-hmm. in hospitals, don't we?
1: Well up in Brisbane I believe you have got Janine Young who is who has been implementing another version of the sidecar crib not the one that we use because they don't make that anymore but something called the Mabim um Mm, yeah in the hospitals in some of the hospitals in Brisbane or the Sunshine Coast she's at the University of the Sunshine Coast now she used to be at the University of Brisbane
2: that's where I used to work (laughs) Used to, yes I know Janine I've worked with her yeah I think she was doing a project in yeah Sunshine Coast in Brisbane okay
1: Yeah. yeah yeah So, you know, and she's got another one. She's she's working with some people down in Canberra doing a similar thing. So, you know, I think these things are gradually spreading, but but it's difficult to get the research funding to do stuff like this because half the people go, oh, no, we don't need that. Yes. That's not important. And half the people go, well, it's obvious. Why do you need to do a study to demonstrate it? Um, so I have found over the years trying to get money to do this kind of research you know, it's, on the one hand, it's not novel to some people, it's common sense, and to other people, it's it's not important. Mm. So um trying to, to make the case for why they should fund it when there are so many other things that they've got calls, you know, on the research money um can be take quite a long time.
0: Yeah, and we're, there. Still, we're still in this sort of predicament of 24, 25 years later, mm-hmm. we still wrap these babies up and mm-hmm. we put them in their fish tanks yeah, yeah and we wonder why <laughs> we wonder why what's going on yeah. uh, in terms of breastfeeding and frequency and feeding cues and
1: absolutely moms and
0: parents just not learning the the basic feeding cues because it's they're not they're not in this close contact, so they're yes. not actually just responding as you great. would without thinking. They have to think and then respond, or they put a dummy in the baby's mouth mm-hmm. and then the mm-hmm. baby's like, oh, okay, I'm soothed now because I'm wrapped up like a burrito and I'll actually go off and you've missed a feed and mm-hmm. and the impacts of that for future yep. successful
1: milk volumes. We tell volumes. parents that they need to do responsive feeding, but we don't give them the tools to do it or explain what that might look like. Mm. So they think, you know, if they put their baby in the cot and they have the baby monitor and as soon as they hear the baby cry on the baby monitor, they go and they retrieve it and they feed it. That's being responsive. Mm. But we're talking about a whole different level of responsiveness is what supports breastfeeding.
0: It feels like we still have quite a lot of mixed messaging, even though the messaging for for safe sleeping in terms of SIDS and the UK messaging was that... uh, it took an approach where it wasn't just a blanket ban of co-sleeping must never happen. And, you know, don't smoke, don't Mm -hmm. uh, sleep with your baby if you've had alcohol, but you, you looked at the research, you looked at what was really happening. Mm -hmm. And I believe there was research where, you know, uh, about two thirds of women actually said, I found myself that I've just woken up in bed with my baby anyway. I didn't plan Mm -hmm. to do it. And to ignore the fact that so many women, are doing this in order to breastfeed and then we actually don't give them a way of safely sleeping Mm -hmm. or any Mm -hmm. guidance was crazy and you were part of bringing in that messaging of saying do you know what we actually need to support the women because this is happening whether you like it or not Mm -hmm. we need to look at what is safe co-sleeping because naturally hundreds of years ago and in other cultures it happens but Mm -hmm. however Mm -hmm. we do drug our Cells up during birth and labor and we do medicalize it and we have all mm-hmm. these other issues going on um we need to make it as safe as possible but you didn't mm-hmm. ignore the fact that this is going on and that was the first change in the world was in the UK I believe
1: mm-hmm. I think I think you're probably right yes so yeah one of the arguments that we managed to get some traction with um was was the argument that we've demonstrated, we've shown in multiple studies now that people bring their babies into bed and that they have their babies in bed for a wide variety of reasons. One of those, the most predominant one of those probably, is breastfeeding. And those women need to have information about how to breastfeed safely, how to bed share safely, because you're not going to get them to stop doing it. Um, But then there are also other reasons that parents look you know we discovered that parents bring their babies into bed some some more safe, some less safe, but all of these people needed information and we argued that it was actually unethical to withhold mm. information about how to avoid dangerous circumstances what were the dangerous circumstances and what did you you know how could you make your bed safer and you know one we had been videoing mums and babies sleeping together in the hospital in the home in our sleep lab when I I got Durham University to to set us up a sleep lab um and we had demonstrated that you know breastfeeding mums and babies sleep together in a very very distinctive way and it you know provides a a number of apparent um safety benefits that people worry about with respect to SIDS and therefore teaching women and especially non-breastfeeding women who might not do this instinctively, how to, uh, to sleep with their babies safely, you know, was, could could be hugely, you know, important in terms of reducing SIDS anyway. So it was kind of a missed opportunity to not share that information and gradually over time people began I don't know well I was going to say people began to change their minds and I don't know how many people actually changed their minds or whether it was just a generational thing and eventually one generation that had been dominant in the SIDS world in the UK sort of gave way to the next generation and the next generation kind of was a bit less dogmatic about never bed sharing. Um, but but which whatever, whatever the kind of like the personality dynamics were around all of that, it started to shift around 2014. And in 2014, there was a nice review. The National Institute of Health and Care Excellence were asked, actually, by the Minister of Health to review the evidence on co-sleeping and bed sharing and what health professionals in the UK should be saying. And this was as a consequence of a study that had been published by uh, uh, one of the influential um, SIDS statisticians, he wasn't an epidemiologist, he was a statistician, in 2013, that claimed to demonstrate that there was a five-fold increased risk of SIDS with bed sharing. Mm. But the data had been analysed in quite a strange way, and there were numerous bits of information that had been imputed in the study because they hadn't collected the data. And you know, it, it caused a lot of discussion and debate about whether this five times increased risk was really real. Mm. And as a consequence, this this review was done. And uh I sat on I was one of the one of the people who was on this panel, along with lots of other. Clinicians and experts, et cetera. Um, and at the beginning, we were each asked to kind of say what was our perspective on this topic. And I said, well, I'd like to explain why mother's bedchair. As a, as a bed sharing mother myself, and as an anthropologist who has studied this in, in great detail, I'd like to talk to you about what the what the advantages are to us of doing this. Um, And at the end of the the whole discussion, they came to the conclusion that parents should be making it was a it was a topic where parents should be making informed choices. It shouldn't be one where there was dogmatic guidance being given because it affected different people in different ways. Mm. People did it for different reasons. Mm. There were different outcomes involved. And they reviewed all of those case control studies and couldn't find any clear evidence. But co-sleeping increased it. So um that's that's that was the start of the change of the UK guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's kind of gathered momentum since then. And now we have national guidance that doesn't tell parents that they should never bed share. It tells parents what hazardous bed sharing entails or hazardous co-sleeping, because it's not just in a bed, mm-hmm. and then it shows them what safe bed sharing looks like and talks yeah. to them about things to think about to make bed sharing as safe as possible, which I think is a huge step forward. It's not without its mm. critics. There are still people here who would like to see that go away.
0: Yeah, I can um, imagine.
1: But, you know, I think one of, one of the things that I think really helped was the fact that um, the UNICEF Baby Friendly Initiative and Lullaby Trust were able to come together to to agree on a set of guidance which satisfied the SIDS world and satisfied the breastfeeding community.
0: Yes, I mean, you made great strides there. It's made a huge difference. And other countries followed that work and that messaging. It might have taken a while, um, but it started to make a difference for a lot of countries and a lot of people around the world. So fantastic work because the importance of just like keeping mums and babies together at points where they want to breastfeed is Mm -hmm. so paramount. I mean, babies feed so frequently through the night. Of course. And you're exhausted. And there is this dogma of, you know, if you breastfeed, you're going to have less sleep, you're going to have worse sleep. So you need to formula feed. And, you know, you looked into that in terms Mm -hmm, of the frequency mm -hmm. of feeding and the location of where people feed and the differences between feeding types.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And breastfeeding, mothers don't get less sleep. They get about the same amount of sleep, but it's more fragmented. They mm-hmm. wake up more frequently. And, and I think preparing women for that so that they know that this is normal and that they can find strategies like bringing the baby into bed um, or sharing, you know, expressing and, and letting their partner feed some of the night feeds. Um, there are ways in which you can you can make that nighttime breastfeeding easier, but you need to you need to be aware of them before you start so that you don't hit that crisis point and just decide I'm giving up.
0: Yeah, I think your work has been has uh, played a huge role in my in my career and the information I've been giving. I feel like I'm hearing the words that I've been reading about and the leaflets that I've been giving out for 20 years and saying, go here, this is it's just marvellous. And I really appreciate what you've done because it's, I think it's been a big battle. And I'm mm-hmm. really grateful that that pat on the arm kept you going.
1: <laughs> yes. Because where I would we it, be? I think it's also been at the luxury of being an academic um kind of doing this rather than a health professional and I think it would have been a lot more difficult for me to have been as outspoken about it as I was able to be as a health professional um I think that that bit of academic freedom that you're expected to kind of like t- say what your research has found and and um you know um speak truth to power if you like as I've been in a privileged position being able to do that. I'm not going to get fired by somebody who dislikes what I'm doing. But, you know, this is what they want me to do as an academic. So I've been encouraged to to put my money where my mouth is in a lot of respects and try to create impact out of my research and, you know, get it out there in the real world. So probably wouldn't have happened if I'd been in a different kind of career.
0: Hmm.
2: Rachel, have you got any other questions? No, I'm. Just, that was just fascinating for me because it's not c- kind of a topic that I guess I've looked at for a long time. Yeah, lots to think about.
1: Well, have a look at what uh, Janine's been doing with the State of Queensland um, SIDS guidelines because she's um, quite dramatically overhauled those as well. They're now a risk minimization approach, and a a risk elimination. So yeah. Queensland's the first state in Australia to to follow the UK.
0: And that's been going on a long time because I remember I worked at the Sunshine Coast Hospital um, and I remember talking about that and being with meetings in like the Queensland cluster, mm-hmm. talking about that. And I haven't been in Queensland for 10 years mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. so at least. So that, I mean, that has not happened overnight either. No, she's
1: been doing a lot of work behind the scenes on that for a long
0: time it's a big battle um for anyone working in this field unfortunately it shouldn't be no no but it is I wanted to bring you on Helen because I I just I think because you've been part of my work for 22 (laughs) years and it was like oh I wonder if I could get Helen on and it was just really exciting (laughs) for me because I just yeah just knowing that when you've when you've really been, I'm just so grateful and you've just been part of my, my care that I've been able to provide. And I want to share that with the midwives and the birth workers that listen to us and also make sure that people go on to the basis.co.uk. I will get the right details in the show notes. Um, but I also want to mention one more thank you because I just saw this last night and wasn't aware of it, um, before have to admit that you also have a, um, Photo doc library, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, an image archive, yeah, an
0: image archive, yes, of correct bed sharing. Mm-hmm. And where I live currently, there is an image at the moment from a health insurance company, and you have to have mm-hmm. health insurance here by law, and there. Image has been there for a month and a half, and I am going to write to them because I keep meaning to. And I see it on the bus, but by the time I get home, I've forgotten. <laughs> and it's not my own health insurance provider. And there is a dad on a sort of sofa, yeah, you know, oh, like one of those really big sofas, mm-hmm. asleep. And mm-hmm. the baby's on the sofa next to him, asleep. Mm-hmm. Image of co sleeping on a bed surface. <laughs> and I'm infuriated. <laughs> and so now I saw this last night, I went, oh my goodness, there's stock imagery that is there to stop this thing happening. So I will be
1: doing my best German, putting it through the translator (laughs) and
0: writing that email today.
1: Well, we created that image archive for a very similar reason because there was an article in the BMJ um, talking about co-sleeping. In fact, it was talking about, I think, a response to the NICE guidance. And... The picture that they illustrated it with was of hazardous co-sleeping, and I was furious. And I'm like, find a better picture. This (laughs) is absolutely irresponsible to talk about changing the guidance and then show a picture of hazardous bed sharing. This is what people are going to think bed sharing looks like. Um, So they did. They changed it quite quickly after I got in touch. But then I'm like, (laughs) but they, they did struggle to find a picture. Yeah. So, um, I was like, right, we need pictures so that people can't say in future that they're struggling to find a picture.
0: So exactly. So, that is a blooming awesome resource. <laughs> oh, we have little puppy, come, Esther,
2: come to visit. This is who um, I co sleep
1: well, with. <laughs> you very similar to my puppy. We've got a multi poo. What's yours?
2: Oh, she's mostly poodle. A little bit of. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Well,
1: mine's the same color and got the same kind of uh, curly hair
2: oh yeah and she also I left
1: out oh <laughs> well,
2: the thing she has it's hazard sleeping she gets mm-hmm. under the covers and burrows right down so i worry that oh, right. she's probably not getting <laughs> enough oxygen through the night but anyway <laughs> <laughs> we digress we could talk about monkeys and
0: dogs yeah, yeah i awesome. need to do another podcast because that interests <laughs> me a, a hell of a lot <laughs> well i think this has been uh well for me it's been an absolute treat and I think for Rachel as well to have you with us Helen today and give well, us some thank insights you very
1: much. yeah yeah
0: thank it's you nice to
1: know that, that my work is being implemented you know by people all around the world it's a it's a very gratifying feeling really
0: mm. oh good I'm glad and I'm grateful for you so thank you so much for being with us thank you thank you
1: thank you thank you, thank you for spreading the word about all of this stuff
0: What we're here for. I hope you found a few golden nuggety nuggets in the show today. Please don't press pause, but instead scroll on down on your podcast app. Yep, that's it. Down there. And pop a review and maybe a few stars to make our eyes twinkle with glee. For more on breastfeeding and lactation content, Head on over to my website where my course is. And for courses and books from Rachel, you can find everything in the links below. So all I got to say now is, see you next time. And I can't wait. wondering which of my courses is for you breastfeeding and lactation the fundamentals has been designed for everyone working in the birthing field or those on their journey to becoming breastfeeding specialists or IBCLCs this course gives you seven hours of CPD and is packed with reflective learning case studies and some pretty tough at times quizzes to make sure this stuff sticks It also means you can meet me monthly in my live Q&A. This is my course that I hope will fill in the gaps that traditional breastfeeding education has left out. I want you completing this, feeling confident to support any breastfeeding or lactation challenge of those in your care. But wait, I have another course called The Feeding Couch. Who's this for? Currently, around 80 to 96% of women decide to breastfeed during their pregnancy, but by just eight weeks after birth, a third to almost 50% of those women have stopped breastfeeding. And of those women who stopped, 80% say they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to. Learning about breastfeeding during pregnancy has been shown to improve breastfeeding self-confidence and improve the rate of exclusive breastfeeding in the short and the long term. I believe every mum should be able to choose how she wants to feed her baby and for how long. Knowledge is power. That's why I created The Feeding Couch, designed to be watched during pregnancy or for new mums and parents who may be struggling right now with breastfeeding. The content is in step-by-step, binge-worthy whilst pregnant or for those most tired of days postpartum. Totally easy to find exactly what you need and dip in and out when you need a breastfeeding answer quickly. And for you, beautiful podcast listener, there is a 10% discount off both courses when you use the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, at checkout. To find out more, hop on over to my website, katiejames.site, and have a look at the incredible content waiting for your lucky peepers.